Okay, Matthew 27 is where we'll be this morning. Verse 11. Two weeks ago, we talked about what the heart of the gospel is, substitution. Jesus in our place. And today, we're going to see it again, but it's not going to be hinted at. It's not going to be just kind of Rod's interpretation of some text putting it that way. Like this is full-blown, in your face, no questions about it, plainly and clearly there is substitution in the story today. Okay, and you've, you've heard this story of Barabbas. So just as a reminder, the chief priests, um, we know from history, the Jewish leaders, they didn't really have the authority to just take Jesus and nail him on a cross in the middle of the city. They couldn't do that. So that's why they had to bring him before Pilate, uh, before these different people, to, so that they could have Rome kind of impose that death penalty. It's interesting, though, as we get into this, the conversation that Jesus has with him. Because Jesus says very little. And so I just want to kind of put that in your ear as we read it. And just usually a conversation is, is two-sided, right? Maybe it's not and it should be. But um, usually a conversation is a little give and take. Well, there's it's just an interesting exchange here. So chapter 27, verse 11 through 26. Let's read it together. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had, an, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's, let's pray one more time this morning. Lord, these words even, even weigh heavy on us again today. Thinking of all that Christ endured, the road that he was to walk. But Lord, in this story, we see beauty. We see wonder that we don't deserve. Open our eyes to that even more so this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So did you notice what was unusual about Jesus' conversation with Pilate? Jesus only said four words. Four words in a whole conversation. You have said it was so, or you have said so. 
That was his response. With all the things that they were accusing him of, that was all that he said. You have said so. This is actually an interesting Greek phrase that Jesus has already used in Matthew chapter 26, verse 25. It's, it's in the Lord's Supper. And he's told the disciples, hey, someone is going to betray me. And they're all like, well, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And it comes to Judas. And Judas asks, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus answers him the same way. He says, you have said so. So this is, this is a, a, an expression in the Greek that kind of reflects responsibility back to the person asking the question. Do you see that? It kind of deflects responsibility back to that person. You know, I found in conversations, and I, I'm not the best at practicing this always, but I found in conversations it's helpful to repeat back to the person what they're saying. Right? Have you guys ever done that before? Had someone do it with you? It can be an, a, an infuriating thing because you begin to hear what you're saying sounds like to someone else. And sometimes that's not the way that you intend it. And so it's, but it's good. It's, it's a helpful thing. This is kind of what Jesus was doing here. He was sort of putting their words back in their mouth, putting it right out in front of them. Well, you said it was so. You've said so. I don't think he was trying to be a smart aleck necessarily or even difficult. He was just showing them what they were saying so that they could all see it. Pilate was stunned. In verse 14, that's what, he was just amazed. He couldn't believe that this guy was being accused of stuff that he knew would send him to death. And he didn't, he didn't defend himself. He didn't bring anybody in on his behalf. He didn't even speak. And this fulfills scripture, we, we know. But he was charged with blasphemy and he didn't give a, diff, a, a single word in his defense. Um, but Pilate did ask him a specific question. Look, uh, look back at, well, right at verse 11. What was the question that he asked him? He said, are you the king of the Jews? Now, why was this significant? I think this was important because this was really the real problem. If Jesus was claiming to be a king of a people group that was under Roman rule, that would almost be a direct assault on the, the, the throne of Rome itself. So Pilate's trying to, to find out, okay, what's really the motive here? What's Jesus really saying about himself? Um, and if it was, you know, well, I'm the king of the Jews, I'm going to lead my people in re- rebellion, well, that couldn't fly. That wouldn't fly, and that's what they were trying to prevent. But Jesus didn't defend himself, and Pilate couldn't figure it out. Or he just could not figure Jesus out. He was amazed. He was stunned. Now, it's helpful and I, I like doing this, to look at sort of the harmony of the Gospels here and look at this passage in Luke. So turn to Luke chapter 23. You can keep your ribbon in Matthew and turn to Luke chapter 23. And we're not going to read a big section, but we're going to just kind of skim and I want you to notice some things. Luke 23, uh, starting in the verse 15 area. Something significant that Luke points out that Matthew gives credence to, but Luke specifically six times in in just these verses that we're going to kind of skim over, six times Luke points to Jesus's innocence. Okay? Six times Luke's points Luke points to Jesus's innocence. Um Pilate does it three times. 
just kind of skim through chapter 23, verse 15, 20, and 22. You know, he's saying things like, um, they sent him back because there was, he was not deserving of any of this. He couldn't understand. Verse 20. They, you know, they addressed him. They addressed the, he addressed the crowd once more, thinking, this can't be right. Is this really what they want? And then in verse 22, it's a similar thing. A third time, he said, why? What has he done? This guy's innocent. Then we know, if you just kind of skim forward to verse 41, we know the thief on the cross. In, in his coming to Christ, if you will, this is one of his admit, admissions. He's innocent. We're, the, guy, the other two guys up there, they were right to be up there. And he's, that's what he says. We deserve this. But this guy doesn't. He's innocent. And then we know after, at, after Jesus breathes his last, the Roman centurion, he says, man, surely this was the Son of God, the innocent Son of God. Just in this short section, Luke points out six times Jesus' innocence. Matthew says the same in verse 23 when he says, or when, when Pilate says to the people, he says, why? Why should he be crucified? Because that's what he, they said. He said, what do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. He says, why? What has he done? What evil has he done? Even Pilate couldn't find a reason to sentence Jesus to death. Even Pilate, an ungodly Roman man, could find no fault in, in, in Jesus, in this man. But the innocence and sinlessness of Jesus is necessary for what's to come on the cross. Let me just insert this here. People died on crosses in Rome all the time. You guys understand that. We see two crosses represented here of of guys that died in Rome by being nailed to a cross. This happened, I don't know about every day, but regularly. It's nothing special in that sense that Jesus was nailed to the cross. But the fact of who Jesus was is what's special. The sinless, innocent Son of God. Because when a sacrifice, perfect sacrifice like that is made, as C.S. Lewis puts it, death moves backwards. Right? It's a beautiful part of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I love that movie. Um, Notice I said movie and not book because I didn't read the book. (laughs) So at this point... Jesus is, I mean, Pilate's kind of giving him over to the people and what they want. And he brings up another player in the story. And so Barabbas enters the scene. Right? We don't know a whole lot about th- this guy, except that in uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 7, it says that he was guilty of uh, insurrection, rebellion, and murder in that. So he's a murderer, he's a rebel, he's, uh, I think somewhere else mentions that he's a thief, um, he was guilty as charged, right? He was right to be in prison where they were keeping him. His crimes were documented and, and it was right that he was serving his sentence. Guess what the Romans do for someone convicted of murder? They put him on a cross. They nail him to a cross, death by crucifixion. This was Barabbas' fate and he knew it. Uh, we, we have to understand that he knew that's what he was going to be up against. This, regardless of what you might read or think, Barabbas was not just this like felon that was in the wrong place at the wrong time in need of rehabilitation. This guy was on death row for cold-blooded murder and trying to overthrow the government. 
That was the problem here. His end was coming soon and he knew it. But think about this. I think Pilate was more intuitive than I initially gave him credit for maybe. And maybe we give him credit for that we might think. If you go back to Matthew 27 verse 18, it says that he could tell that the chief priests, the religious leaders really gave Jesus up. Why? Because they were envious of him. Even Pilate could tell these guys are just mad because he's more popular than them. Because he's got a bigger following than them. Now, I think it's true that they were scared that Jesus' popularity would rise up a group and then Rome would have to squash them. But in, at its core, these guys were just jealous. They were just jealous of Jesus, of his popularity, of his fame, of what he could do. But Pilate, man, he saw through it. Not only this, um, we read in verse 19 of Matthew 27 that his wife gives him a warning. So Pilate's sitting on his judgment seat. You know, he's at work and he gets a message from his wife that says, don't have anything to do with Jesus. I had a terrible dream about it and it's not good. Don't have anything to do with it. Well, like most typical men, what does Pilate do? He ignores his wife and her good advice. Sorry, moms, on a Mother's Day, we see the reality of marriage often, and we see that Pilate did not heed his wife, and so he just keeps going with the crowd. He tries to reason with them. Probably a bad idea when you've got a crowd kind of ripe for rebellion and just rioting. You try to reason with them. There's not a whole lot of reasoning going to happen. But in verse 21, Pilate asked them this second time, are you really sure? that you want me to, to let Jesus be crucified and Barabbas go free? You want me to release the murdering rebel instead of the innocent guy? What did they say? Let him be crucified. He had heard them right the first time. And their answer really couldn't have been more clear. And in reality, what they were saying was that they were willing to exchange a murderer for the one who brings the dead back to life. They were willing to give up the creator of life for someone who takes life. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, but the crowds were loud and it was insistent. And so he caved. So in the presence of all, he brings up this big water basin, this big bowl. And ceremonially, you know, just kind of for show, he washes his hands and he says, my hands are clean of this guy's blood. You guys understand what that means. It means that he's no longer responsible for what happens with Jesus. And the, the crowd's answer is just horrible. It's mind-boggling. It's, it's especially frustrating in light of what just days earlier they were saying when Jesus came in on the back of a donkey. They say, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. Man, couldn't... Couldn't they just have stopped on, on us? I, I wonder if kids are sitting there thinking, man, why you got to bring me into this? Like, this is, like, but that's just, that, I think that goes to the depravity of the mind, brothers and sisters. They weren't satisfied with just getting rid of the guy here. They were looking ahead at the effect of this. They were serious, seriously deceived. The blood that they spoke of, that they cried out for, would soon be spilled on Calvary. It was coming. But the difference was that it was spilled willingly. 
not by force. No one took it from him. Jesus went to the cross. He set his eyes on the cross from what Hebrews says is for the joy that was set before him. Man. Let's go back to Barabbas. Now, I want to point out something here that it's not generally a good idea to take just one obscure figure from biblical history and to try to get inside their mind, you know, and think, well, what, what were they thinking? And because we don't have a lot of information, um, you know, to dissect their thoughts and to say, well, what were they thinking? How would I feel in this situation? Sometimes that's helpful, but most of the time it's probably not all that wise. But today it's a do as I say, not as I do kind of a thing. And so we're going to do that with Barabbas. Okay, because I think the implications of what's happening in this story are huge for how we understand Christ's sacrifice and our atonement. And so I think it's, it's helpful here. This has big implications for us in connection with the gospel. And so I want to think from Barabbas' perspective for just a few minutes. Okay, so kind of take a, take a second. Forget about what you were thinking about and put yourself in Barabbas's shoes and let's set the scene. He knew, as I already mentioned, he knew he was facing death for his crimes. It was not a surprise to him. He knew it. There was, at that time, really not a judicial system in place for a convicted murderer to have a high fancy lawyer come in and try to defend him and get him off. There was none of that. You didn't have rights as a prisoner like that. There was no court of appeals that he was going to be able to appeal to. He was not probably ever going to get out on good behavior. None of that stuff. Okay. It's not like our prison system, prison system is now. He was guilty of murder. He had no rights. That was it. He knew that he could be sitting in prison any day. The guard comes and unlocks the door and haul him away to the cross. Any day that could happen. He was just waiting. Uh, he knew it was pretty much over, I think. Every day that passed for Barabbas was another day closer to his death. There was very little, if any, hope for him at this point. He faced not just death on a cross, crucifixion, which was a horrible way to die, but think of what happened before they put people on the cross. The scourging the beatings, the mockery, the torture. Remember here too, Barabbas didn't have any say in whether he would be released or not. He was still in prison somewhere, probably a cell in the ground, very little light, probably somewhere close by to um, the Roman official's palace. Uh, Not exactly sure, but just imagine for a minute Barabbas sitting on a dirt floor in the door, in the corner of a dark prison cell. And all of a sudden he hears people shouting outside, crucify him, crucify him. If you're Barabbas, you're probably thinking they're coming for me. It's my time. He knows it. His days finally come and then his fears are are played out because a guard comes, unlocks the door, grabs his arm and starts pulling him out. He's taken outside into the bright sunlight, which he probably hadn't seen in a while. And so things are kind of foggy and bright and he can't really see. And he's just, 
He's struggling to get his balance with the chains around his arms and his legs, the bright sunlight, and he is anticipating the whips. And you guys have heard the stories of what those whips do and what they look like with the bone and the glass and how they rip through your your flesh and your tendons and bone is exposed and all of these horrible things that he knows is right around the corner. And then something unexpected happens. The guard comes up and takes off his shackles. He uses the key and he takes off the things that are binding his arms and his legs. For some bizarre reason that he probably doesn't understand initially, he's set free. He's set free. He's no longer in prison. He's no longer facing the cross, the beating, the torture. And not only is he set free, but people are cheering for him. We want Barabbas. This, this makes no sense to him, I'm, I'm sure. Be, again, because of just the incredible implications here, I want us to, to put ourselves in Barabbas' shoes. You were just in chains, right? Walking toward the cross, hearing the crowd, calling for your death, and then unbelievably, when you least expect it, you're set free. No longer condemned to die. Imagine now that in your confused kind of stupor, like what is happening here, you hear the shouts begin again. Crucify him. Crucify him. And you see another person through the crowd walking towards the cross. same guards that released you are the ones dragging this guy up the hill. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's beaten. He's humiliated. He's forced to carry his cross. It's the very cross that you imagined that you were going to be carrying. You can't help but think to yourself, that's where I'm supposed to be. That's the death that I'm supposed to be dying. One of the most profound things that I read about this this week was this idea that Barabbas is the one person in history who could literally say that Jesus carried his cross. That was Barabbas' cross, and Jesus carried it. Now, I want us to be sure that we're seeing things for how they really are here. There are too many ironies, if you even want to call them ironies. There's too many of them for this all to just be a coincidence. Uh, this is this is why what I want us to see this morning. Do you guys know what Barabbas' name means? I didn't know this. Bar means son. Abba means father. Barabbas' name literally means son of the father. What's Jesus' name? Who is Jesus? Son of the father. Their names meant the same thing. But their lives couldn't have been more different, could they? One, compare with me, one rules by taking the lives of others. The other one rules by giving his own life. One wants to overthrow the king while the other is the rightful king of all. One is guilty but set free and the other is innocent but sent to be killed. Brothers and sisters, they freed the wrong son of the father. Jesus was going to be killed for the kind of crime that the freed man 
actually had committed. But the irony is they don't stop just there. Jesus literally took Barabbas' punishment for him. He even marched to his death as Barabbas would have, but he did it differently. He did it willingly. He did it quietly. And I want us to be clear here too. It wasn't because he had lost, right? I think we know that, but it's good to remind ourselves. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he had lost. It wasn't that he was outsmarted by his opponents. That's what the religious leaders finally thought. We finally got him. It wasn't that. It wasn't that he was outsmarted. It wasn't a mistake or an accident. It wasn't God's plan B. Understand this. It wasn't God's plan B for salvation. The crucifixion of the innocent son was God's plan from eternity past. Before the foundations of the world, this was God's plan. And he would see it through. In Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem because he was on a mission. When it says set his face, it meant that he was committed to that thing. His whole life was moving towards Golgotha. His whole life was moving towards that hill on which he would die. His life was a march to the cross. He lived to die. The Jews got the wrong man. They got the wrong son of the father, but the Lord put forward the right one, the right man, the only one whose death could truly satisfy his righteousness and bring sinners back to him. There's a video I want us to to take just a few minutes to watch that talks about who this man is Barabbas and make some correlations between us and him. And I, I think it'd be helpful for us to watch. So let's watch that this morning. We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is, this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper? What what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We want Barabbas. Yeah, give us Barabbas. 
People say, give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform, welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is, but all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience of Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, or you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent, for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of the Heavenly Father.
so ashamed. Give me your shame. But God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh, God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed. Or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive? Let me have your sin, son. Okay. And I give him my sin. I stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, go son, live your life. I'll pay the price. When we get off, thinking that we were going to set ourselves free. It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If His blood is sufficient for your salvation, His blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough! I don't know if you caught the question. So where do you and I get off thinking we were going to set ourselves free? Man. I, I feel the weight of that. This week, today, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to admit your, your wrongs, right? The things that I've done wrong are real. The Bible refers to it as sin. Those things are sin, and we have to admit it. You and I, we have this problem deep within us. We sit in this spiritual prison. We sit bound and helpless, waiting for the day when we get the just punishment that we deserve. We sit on death row, waiting to be dragged out to face God's righteous judgment, not knowing when it's going to come down. But brothers and sisters, the good news is that when you repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus alone to save you, he goes to the cross in your place. He gets what you deserve and you get what he deserves, what he earns. Jesus gave up his life so that you can have life at all. It is the greatest and most scandalous exchange in all of history. It is ridiculous to think that God in perfect unity of the Trinity would send His Son to die for sinners like you and me. 
It's ridiculous. The greatest exchange in all of history that Jesus, the innocent, would be delivered over to the punishment of death while those who are guilty of death are found innocent. And yet, this is what happens. We see that, we will see that in the text. Jesus took Barabbas' place, took the cross to the hill, was nailed to it in his place. And brothers and sisters, he does the same for us. Jesus is enough for us. I'd say more than enough. Now, Matthew, and especially Luke, as we mentioned, make it obvious that Jesus was completely innocent. There was not a dispute among them. But before God, you and I are not like that. You and I are like Barabbas, guilty and rightfully charged with the sins that we've committed. Think about the book of Romans. Some of our kids have been learning the Romans Road in the Awana program. Romans 3.23 reminds us that it's not just a few people that have sinned and are, have fallen short of God's glory. It's everyone, all persons, everywhere, have disobeyed and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 reminds us that the penalty for that is what? Is death. We have a death warrant. We are criminals who have broken God's law and are guilty as charged. But, but we have in this text this morning that we see in Matthew 27, this incredibly accurate picture of our own release accomplished by the cross through faith. By giving himself for us at the cross, Jesus takes our place and we are released and set free. He took our place and we're set free. The innocent Jesus is condemned as a sinner while the sinner is set free and called innocent. Brothers and sisters, I I really believe that the more that we understand the depths of our sin and the effect of our sin on God, the more we will say, I'm Barabbas. I'm guilty. But I also think that the more we understand the sacrifice of Christ and the holiness of God, we're going to say, all I have is Jesus. All I have is Christ. And he's enough. I'm not telling you anything new this morning, I don't think. That you're a sinner and that Jesus was innocent and he died in your place but I want us to see it played out in this story of Barabbas like we did this morning. We are Barabbas. I'm so clearly guilty and deserving of condemnation, but set free because of the willing substitution of the innocent Son of God in my place. Man, that's something that we will never get over. Don't ever get over that. Always stand in awe and wonder at why this would be the case. And it's because of who God is. It's because of his love. It's because of his mercy and grace. Ephesians 2 says, because of the love with which God loved us, we've been reconciled back. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God's love has brought us back. Brothers and sisters, you are Barabbas. 
I am Barabbas, and yet Christ died in our place. There's a song that we're going to sing as we close today. And the second verse, I think it's the second verse, has these words. They might sound familiar. It says, In my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior.